Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, and we'll be in chapter 2. Just wonder this morning, when it comes to your thoughts on Christmas, what are some of the memories you have? Some of those Christmas times. You know, maybe some years gone by that kind of stand out a little more to you. You know, when you think, oh yeah, that one Christmas, I remember that, or, or, or that time of year, maybe something that, that comes, to, comes to heart, comes to mind. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this message, and I was sort of replaying some of the some of the Christmas thoughts I have, and and uh, you know I really actually was kind of sad with some some of the thoughts that I had because it was kind of like well you know that's really not the uh, the thoughts of Christmas that you would think would come to mind, and I don't mind sharing some of them. I mean, like for example, when when I think back, and I probably some of it's because I didn't become a believer until I was in my mid twenties. But I remember one Christmas, and I guess it stands out in my mind because it was unique. It was different. I remember it's around 86, 87 degrees. And I was actually sunbathing on top of a cruise ship in the Bahamas. And I was listening to Garth Brooks' Christmas. And I was thinking, this is kind of weird. You know, <laughs> um, uh, and especially if you're not a Garth Brooks fan, you probably think that is really weird. Um, and at the time I was, I'm not anymore. I've been redeemed. But uh, that was one that stood out, and we called it Metal Beach, you know, and I just remember sitting there thinking, wow, you know, and I was listening to Christmas music, and, and I was just thinking, you know, uh, well, you know, it's, it's Christmas, and here I am in the Bahamas. That one stood out to me. And, and, of course, I also think back when I was in high school, there was another one that really stood out to me. It was my first ever big play production. And I was a junior in high school, and I actually had gotten cast in the lead role in Christmas Carol. I was Scrooge. And I remember having to put on all that crepe, you know, uh, make the fake beard, you know, the, the crepe stuff that they, you know, make the, the hair out of. And it was wavy. It actually matched my hair at the time. But, um, and they grayed me up, and, and I was Scrooge. And I remember that one, because that was kind of a special, you know, time of year. I'm doing those plays. Yeah, typecasting, thank you. Bye, humbug. So anyway, (laughs) that was one that stood out. Um, Then there was another time where I I was needing some part-time work. I was probably late teens, maybe 19, 20 years old. And I saw in the paper they were hiring for Santa Claus to work the mall. And I thought, you know what, I could do that. I could do that. So I applied, and sure enough, I got the job. So I was Santa Claus at the Randolph Mall. For many years, some of you may have visited me. No, just kidding. Um, but I remember that was really a cool gig. I have to admit, that one was, in a weird way, it was very enjoyable. Um, because it was just, it's amazing what little kids tell Santa Claus. I mean, it really is. It, it would melt your heart. Um, and I remember one time, there was this family that came through right as the mall was getting ready to close, and it was time for me to get ready to go back and get in my normal clothes. And, and I remember there was an exit door, a side door, that opened, and it wasn't the normal mall entrance, but it was a side door. And this family came in, and it was a mom, and there were two, <clears throat> two kids, two small kids. And I remember as they got close, they just really were dirty. I mean, their clothes were very tattered, just very dirty. And when they got on my lap, I'm not exaggerating here, I almost threw up because the smell was so strong. They stunk. I mean, they were just really 
it was it was bad. But they sat there and they were so mesmerized by Santa Claus, you know. And so, of course, I asked him, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And the little girl said, well, Santa, you know, you, every year you, you, what you get is a tree and whatever you give us here. And, and I was kind of wanted to make sure I understood her correctly, but what was happening was evidently this was their Christmas. Whatever I gave them at the mall, be it a candy cane, a coloring book, that was pretty much their Christmas. And supposedly I got them a Christmas tree every year. So I'm not sure where that came into play, but I just remember it really broke my heart. And so um, I tried to find out who the family was, and somebody, I guess, from the mall knew of them, and and, uh, we did try to work that year to try and make sure they got that Christmas tree and a little bit more. But I just think on that story, and man, it's just, you know, it breaks your heart because, you know, for, for especially kids like that, there's a great need. And it's beyond the toys and the material things and the Santa stuff. There was another gentleman who came in, and this one stands out to me as well. And he was a senior saint. And uh, this man, I mean, he, could, he was you know, slow moving, and he just came up, and, hey, Santa, how are you? And he started talking to me and ended up having a good conversation with the, with the elderly gentleman. And I noticed he had a tie, unique tie, very unusual. I've never seen a tie like this before in my life. And I commented, I said, that is a really neat tie. Where'd you get that? And he said, well, I have all my ties handmade from a lady out of Raleigh. I said, wow, I really like that. So he walked on. Well, a little bit later, he comes back and he's loosening his tie. And he says, Santa, and he looked me right down. He got right in my face and he looked me in the eyes. And he says, I can tell you're a young man. He says, you'll get a lot more wear out of this tie than I ever will. I want you to have it. And I said, oh, no, no, I can't take that tie from you, sir. He said, yes, sir, you will. He said, don't you know you're supposed to respect your elders? (laughs) And I almost wore the tie today, but I don't wear it. But I want you to see it. You can probably see why I didn't wear it today. But take a look at that tie. Now, that is a unique tie, isn't it? Got smiley faces all over it. And you notice on the back here, it says, handmade, you can read that, can't you, MB? Handmade by Betty H. Patterson. So he wasn't kidding when he said it was handmade. And I want you to know, I have held on to this tie ever since then. And I, it actually hangs in my tie closet. And every time I open up my door and put on my ties, I'm reminded of this man's generosity. And um, hey, Christmas is a special time, isn't it? The doors are open for us in so many ways um, to not just give and help people with material things, but the most important thing. And that's what Christmas is about. The gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Guys, there's a lot of clutter that kind of gets in the way of Christmas. And yet we see glimpses of what Christmas is really about through acts of kindness, such as this. But there's nothing more clear than what we find right here in the pages of God's Word. Look with me, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 2, my um, uh, marker's kind of getting tattered there. I'm going to have to get me a new one. Wow, it's really tattered. Okay, Um, Luke chapter 2, and let's begin our reading in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask for clarity. I ask for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that this message would go forth unhindered and that it might touch the hearts of those listening, whether it via radio or here in our midst. Lord, may you be glorified. May we truly focus beyond the clutter of Christmas to the Christ for the true reason of the season. We'll give you all the praise, for we ask it in his precious name, for his sake. Amen. Um, these seven verses give us a lot of info. And this morning, what I want to do is try to look a little closer at what's going on during this time period. One of the things most Bible students should do, uh, any good Bible student should do, whenever you're trying to understand what's going on in a passage, is understand the context, understand the culture, understand what, who this is being written to, when it's being written. That helps us in applying those biblical truths and principles from that day to our day. And one of the things I want to do is, is kind of tighten in on what's happening during this time of this writing. But before I do that, I want to kind of give us a little bit of a history lesson on how we got to where we are today when it comes to celebrating Christmas. Why this Christmas tree? Why the Reeves? Why... Uh, mistletoe. You know, think about everything that surrounds us at this time of year and where did it come from? Why is it part of our celebration of Christ? Should it be? You know, these are questions sometimes that uh, uh, we begin to look into and look past some of the things that surround us, the lights, bells, and whistles, if you will. And so I want to read to you some some thoughts here on on the history of some of the things I've just mentioned. MacArthur brings out some of this history in his writing. And listen to this as I read. Sadly, the worldwide celebration of the birth of Christ, which is called Christmas, has become so cluttered and so confused with paganism and personal indulgences as to obscure the simple, clear reality of the birth of God in human form. The world celebrates the birth of Jesus for all the wrong reasons. For the expression of self-indulgence, materialism, partying, social events of all kinds, but largely misses the point as we know. The real significance of the birth of God in human form is overlooked, treated trivially, overshadowed by everything else 
that's going on. And I suppose it's a fair question to say, how can you take such a simple story as we've just read in these seven verses and come up with such a complicated celebration? How do you get from the account of Luke and the account of Matthew, how do you get from those accounts to what we have today? Well, I'll give you a bit of history you might find interesting. For centuries before Christ was born, the month of December had been an occasion long established and still being celebrated at that time as a pagan festival of, of significance. In fact, the most boisterous pagan revelries were celebrated in December. It marked the winter, and great celebration was held in anticipation of the coming spring. Everything around was dark and dreary and trees were without leaves and things didn't grow. And in the midst of winter, they put on these great celebrations for the hope of the return of the S-U-N, the sun, the return of the strength of the sun to bring back the spring and make things grow and warm up the cold. Feasting was part of it. Parties were part of it. Adorning your house with evergreens, anticipating those... Uh, deciduous trees and plants that would soon bloom. They were, uh, they even adorned their houses with mistletoe. They exchanged gifts. There was a general merry making held at the time of the year, held by the pagans. This was all a part of their traditional pagan celebration. Now, most scholars would tell you today, if not all of them, that the bishop didn't know the date of Christ's birth because we don't know the date of Christ's birth. December 25th is purely arbitrary. But the idea was, let's take the birth of Christ and put it on the same day, around the same time, to coincide with all the ancient festivals and all the wild winter revelries. In that way, the thinking of this bishop, we will bring a sanctifying influence into this celebration and draw the attention of the people away from those things that they're engaged in and into, a more, into more spiritual pursuits and start making them think about the fact that God came into the world in human form. Nice thought, right? Let's sanctify these celebrations by imposing on the same day a celebration of the birth of Christ. Well, needless to say, the heathen festivals and festivities never missed a beat. They kept on going at the same pace. They were always going. And the church, which frowned on them and wanted to change them, finally accepted them and let them be assimilated into the celebration of Christmas so that today Christmas is a conglomeration of all that is distinctively Christian and biblical and all that is distinctively pagan. To the Romans, for example, this winter, December festival, this feasting and orgy was called Saturnalia, named after Saturn, who was the god of agriculture. And it was he who presided over the planting of crops. And during the time of celebration of Saturnalia, gift-giving was the most popular custom. That's where we get that from. The most common gifts of the Saturnalia were small idols, small deities, small gods, replicas of the Roman gods made out of clay, sometimes marble, sometimes silver, 
Candles were used extensively in their idolatrous celebration, and evergreen branches were given to friends to hang on their houses, and sometimes trinkets were placed hanging on the evergreen branches, forerunners for what we know today as Christmas decorations and trees. In the really barbaric Northlands among the Norsemen, a similar winter festival was held, and it was called Yule, or Yuletide as we refer to it. It was in honor of the gods of Odin and Thor. Some of you may recognize those little g-gods. It involved feasting and music, drinking to drunkenness from horns. Don't think there was any big hammers, though I think some of them were getting hammered. Uh, In Persia, fires were kindled to the god Mithras. Some of you may remember, we had uh, at our apologetics conference uh, an expert on Mithras, and he did a workshop explaining the beliefs of the Mithras and how we as Christians can defend against those uh, attacks. If you know anything about legend, you know Mithras was believed to be the god of light, little g-god. And so at this time of year, when the daylight was briefer than another time and winter was on them, they would pray and celebrate the little g-god of light in anticipation of the sun and the spring and summer. In England, there was the Druids. And the Druids, they gathered sacred mistletoe and they made live sacrifices to their many gods. Mistletoe, by the way, was venerated by the English. It was venerated by the Druids. It was venerated by a lot of pagans in pre-Christian times. The Druids, for example, gathered mistletoe during their September celebration. They had some priests. They would get a a few white-clad priests, and they would march to a sacred oak tree with a large entourage where the mistletoe would grow. And then they would have the chief priests climb the tree, he would go with a golden sickle, and he would cut the plant which would fall from the tree and be caught in a cloth so as not to be defiled by touching the ground. Then two white oxen were sacrificed and the mistletoe given to the people to be hung in their homes. Now, the mistletoe was supposed to be an emblem of peace an emblem of good fortune. And whenever the tradition of the Druids was, uh, whenever an enemy passed under the mistletoe, you had to embrace the enemy, and it was supposedly a little ploy to try to help people reconcile. Hence, kissing under the mistletoe, which is some deviated form of that original embrace. I know none of you view your spouse as an enemy, hopefully not, (laughs) but uh, anyways, you kind of get an idea where that originated. Um, Adding to that, you have the drama of the crib or the creech, the manger scene, which was popularized by St. Francis in the 13th century. 300 years after that, Martin Luther, of all people, Martin Luther, brought a tree into his house at this season of Christmas and decorated it with candles. He said he put the candles on it to to simulate the starry skies glittering over the stable where Christ was born. But long before pagans had used bows of evergreens decorated with trinkets to celebrate their own pagan holidays. In Holland, 
There was a favorite saint by the name of Saint Nicholas. This white-bearded bishop of Asia Minor was believed to have appeared around December 6, riding a white horse, leaving gifts for good children, and leaving switches for parents of bad children. (laughs) Boy, some traditions we just need to return to. And he would leave one or the other, the gift or the switch, on the porch. The Dutch called St. Nicholas Cinderclaws, from which we get the derivative Santa Claus. Caroling started in the 14th century along with jesters and musicians and mummers. And there's still a mummers parade. (laughs) I don't think they go, "Mm," maybe they do. I think it's in Philadelphia. Uh, People wearing all kinds of masks and crazy garb, eight-hour feast that all comes from 14th century partying. Now, stockings. Where do they come from? That tradition. Well, it was believed in Holland that St. Nicholas, when he was dropping his switches and good stuff on the porch, on some occasion threw coins down a chimney. And they just happened to land in some stockings hanging there to dry. Out of that came the whole idea that Santa Claus comes down the chimney and fills your stockings. Christmas cards were first printed in London in 1846 at the request of Sir Henry Cole, who was owner of an art shop. About middle 19th century, the celebration of Christmas was accepted by the church in the United States and became a regular part of church life putting the birth of Jesus Christ on the same day as all the rest of this only served to clutter the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ with a whole lot of unrelated pagan elements. But here in this gospel, we find the faithful and true account of Luke and the simple, unbellished, uncluttered story of the birth of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? When we think back on some of the origins of what is now a very um, mainstream part of our celebrations. Now, before you think that I am a proponent of you going home and taking down your Christmas tree and you know no longer participating in hanging mistletoe and kissing, that is not what I'm saying and you missed the whole point of today's message. Look, There is a lot of principles throughout Scripture. There are a lot of examples where we find through Scripture that in spite of the things that try to choke out the truth, truth still prevails and we should still champion truth. If you want to hang a mistletoe and kiss your wife, you go at it. And you tell her that you love her in the name of the Lord. If you want to put a Christmas tree in your house and you want to decorate it up, that's your business, and you know what? You go for it, and you tell people about the reason you put up a Christmas tree. It's because of the new birth in Christ. Use decorations that are intentional, that you might be able to communicate your faith. We have a a nail that we hang on our tree that reminds us of Christ's coming and His death and burial and resurrection. Paul give you an example from Scripture. He went into a town full of pagans, 
full of idols, full of idolatry. And he even used one of their pagan symbols to bring the gospel to that culture because they could relate to all of these things. And he says, you see that right there? That statue to the unknown God? Let me tell you who that God is. So let me tell you who the author of true Christmas is. Let me tell you about the true uh, light of the world. Look, guys, again, too often times we pendulum swing one side or the other. We're all guilty. We're all guilty. Uh, these kind of things. Some people, I, I went to church with a guy at one time and he refused to eat out on Sundays. He just refused to eat out on Sundays. I mean, he would not eat. And some of you, if you hold to that, that look, that, bless your soul, that's fine. If that's what you feel you need to do, you do that. Okay? But, uh, you know, same time too, those of you who can meet, eat meat, offered idols, doing a good conscience, but be careful, right? Just don't invite that brother out on Sunday. But anyway, this guy, he, you know, he refused to go in there. And um, they, uh, you know, and a lot of people have different, different, different views on that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I knew a guy who, who it's same, well, same fellow actually, and he, he did not go to restaurants if there was alcohol served. But he didn't have a problem shopping at Food Line where they sold it, you know what I'm saying. So, so again, we can get into this nitpicky stuff. Don't do that, guys. We're told in the New Testament, don't argue over endless genealogies and, and things that are going to cause strife and division. Look. And so what I want to talk to us about today, go beyond the clutter. Go beyond the things that, that sometimes, is, you know, let's get to the heart of it. And what's at the heart of this message is what Luke has poured out here in very simplistic form. And it's about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about God incarnate. So I don't know what your views are on this tradition or that tradition. I really don't care. That's not what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the truth of Christmas. So let's take a look at that text again. And let's look closer at what's going on here when this was written. And it came to pass in those days. What days? Those days. That a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay. Well, let's stop for a second. Time out. Time out, Bo. Who's this guy? Who's Caesar Augustus? What do you know about Caesar Augustus? No, he's not the inventor of salad. They have a good salad named after him. If you haven't tried it, I recommend it. <laughs> Look, this guy born September 23rd. He was born with the name Octavian. He was named after his father. His grandmother. Let me give you a little context here. Octavian's grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. Probably recognize that name. So, his uh, grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar, and being a talented young man, Octavian came to the attention of his great uncle. Julius Caesar came to adopt Octavian as his son. And he was made his official heir in 45 B.C. John MacArthur writing about this says the following, 
Gaius Octavius had reached the age of 20. Julius adopted him as his own son and declared him to be the heir to the throne of the Roman Empire. Literally established his future at that point. One year later, it was um, Gaius Octavius, he learned of his choice as Julius Caesar's heir. At that point, he changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar in honor of his adopted father. So, he's really got, think about this now, he's got this silver spoon in his mouth. He's headed for the throne. Caesar, you remember, murdered by his friends, namely Brutus. Some of you I know had to read this stuff, right? You know what I'm talking about. One of his sisters, okay, we're talking of the um, uh, Octavian sister, Caesar Augustus. His sister ends up marrying another famous person in history. Anybody know who she married? Mark Antony. Mark Antony. Mark Antony is a very, very dominant figure in Roman history, as you know. Octavian joined with Mark Antony and another, uh, uh, Lepidus, and they split the, the uh, domination of Rome three ways. All right? This is what's happening during this time period. They split up the Roman Empire three ways. For decades, the whole Mediterranean world was filled with wars, violence. Now under the triumvirate, uh, it, it becomes far worse. There were years of bloody, brutal fighting for power, money in Rome, and the provinces. This written here, uh, David Guzek says, Octavian and Anthony were uh, soon pushed Lepidus out of the picture. So now you've got two leaders left. These two leaders... Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, Mark Anthony. They ruled together for a while until Mark Anthony began to do things that bothered Octavian. The first thing that bothered him was he left his wife. And remember who his wife was? His wife was Octavian's sister. So you can imagine now the uh, family get-togethers probably weren't as peaceful as they once were. He didn't like that. MacArthur says he left his wife because he became infatuated with the legendary and betwitching Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, who is really legendary as to her powers of seduction and ability to bewitch. Well, she bewitched Mark Anthony successfully. So here's Cleopatra now on the scene. And she's, she's uh, gotten the ear of, of Mark Anthony and so now the, the empire is somewhat divided again. But even though his sister married Anthony, Octavian's sister married Anthony for 13 years, Octavian and Anthony existed together as rivals until 31 B.C. For a year, the huge armies of Octavian and Anthony assembled and positioned themselves. Anthony, with the help of Cleopatra, brought 500 warships, 100,000 foot soldiers, and 12,000 cavalry. Octavian answered with 400 warships, 80,000 infantry, and 12,000 horsemen. But Octavian had the better strategy and the more mobile ships, and he defeated the combined forces of Antony and Queen Cleopatra of Egypt at the Battle of Actium. Now, Octavius was the sole ruler 
of the Roman world. Again, guys, this story that Luke's writing, and Luke is by far one of the greatest historians as far as even the secular world recognizing his writings as being good history. Okay? Even skeptics acknowledge that a lot of what, that, that he was very detail-oriented in his writings. And, and so the fact that he's naming specific rulers that history says, yeah, this guy did Rome, uh, rule Rome, and yes, he was here in this time, and this, yes, that is true. These writings confirm, right, we, we don't need secular support to confirm what we know is true, but it helps engaging others that don't hold to this book as authoritative. It sure helps in our conversations with them, Right? to be able to cite these facts. So this is what's happening. This is the picture. Think about what's going on in this time period. Think about the day in which Christ enters into the world. All of this has been happening. Kenneth Scott Lafteret, Baptist historian, wrote this. Jesus was born in the reign of Augustus. After a long period of wars which had racked the Mediterranean and its shores, political unity had been achieved and the Roman Empire had become roughly coterminous with the Mediterranean basin. Here and there it was soon to spread beyond it. Augustus was the first emperor building on the foundations laid by his uncle Julius Caesar. He brought peace. And under the guise of the chief citizen of a restored republic ruled the realm which for several generations Rome had been building. The internal peace and order which Augustus achieved endured with occasional interruptions for about two centuries. Never before had all the shores of the Mediterranean been under one rule and never had they enjoyed such prosperity. The Pax Romana, made for the spread of ideas and religions over the area where it prevailed. Latterate. David Guzette goes on to say this, for hundreds and hundreds of years, let me say that again, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Rome prided itself on being a republic, a nation governed by laws, not by any man. The idea that no man was above the law and the Roman Senate and the army and various political leaders lived together in sometimes difficult arrangement, now Octavius would change all that. In 27 BC, he arranged the Roman Senate to give him title Augustus, which means exalted and sacred. Now, Rome wasn't a republic governed by laws. It was an empire governed by an emperor. The first emperor of Rome was this same Caesar Augustus. You know, we read this and too easily we just pass over it. And some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, what does that really matter? You know, what, why spend all this time on that? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons to answer that question, why? we would draw these things out. And I'm not done drawing that out because there's still more that needs to be shared here. But I want you to understand the climate of the culture to see what's going on, to see past all of the chaos because I think then we get a better understanding of the coming of Christ. And I think it also will help lend 
encouragement to us today as believers to see beyond the clutter, to see beyond the chaos, because Christ is coming again. Well, this says something important about the world Jesus was born into. It was a world hungry for a Savior. And a world that was living in the reign of a political Savior. And we know end times teaches us there's coming at a time, an appointed time, where the world is looking for a political Savior. And there will come a seeming political Savior. The Bible describes him as the Antichrist. And I also know that according to the coming of the Antichrist, there is a political climate that is brewing that makes his coming to power not much different than what we find here. This political power rose when the world was looking desperately for answers. You know, I think we live in a day where the world is desperately looking for answers. We look on the news this week and we see the tragedy of the shooting in Connecticut. And the questions being asked, you know, what's the answer? Where's the answer? Why, 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 why is this happening? And as believers, we know why it's happening. Yet, too often times, people can't see the truth because of all the chaos and clutter that's going on around them. Augustus and his successors had not solved the basic problems of the Mediterranean world. They'd obscured them. For what appeared to be a failure in government, they had substituted more government. And government was not the answer. La Tourette. Isn't that the same solutions being offered up to us today? Scary, isn't it? I mean, it really is to think, you know, you hear the same history repeats itself, but yet... When you read the history pages and we look at what's going on today, it's true. But man's problem's still the same. There's a need for a Savior. The census, notice here the verse goes on in 2.1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now that was the known world. And this registration which was taking place was predominantly uh, not so much for the taxation, though that would come. It was for the enrollment of military. You know, let's find out who all the, all the folks are so we can get men enlisted type thing. Though it would lend itself eventually to taxing as well to bring about the needed income. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Again, Here's, an, here's a fact, here's a historical account that either Luke's lying or he's telling the truth. Is Quirinius really a governor? Was he a governor of Syria? Now, let me stop for a second and say this. This is one of those liberals will seize uh, some of our finer, higher education universities. will try and say, aha, you see? This is why you can't trust the Bible. They miss it. We know that Serenius... Um, wasn't governing at this time in Syria. He doesn't govern till uh, 6 AD. In fact, Luke himself even talks about it later in Acts when he talks about a taxation that was carried out by this governor. So see, it contradicts. 
Don't buy that. They obviously didn't do their homework if they ever hear, if you ever hear something such as that. Again, this is why I love Luke. He is a, he is a dedicated historian. And if people will take the time to dig it out, you'll find the answers that are needed. Notice, uh, again, while Quirinius was governing, seventeen. I may get this date wrong, so after I just bash historians, I'm forgetting my date. But that's all right, I'm not a historian. (laughs) Anyway, around 1774, there was a discovery made. And the discovery was of uh, basically an inscription that was found in this area. And it mentioned of a governor ruling. And it mentions the details in regards to his second term. All of the descriptions, though he's not named by name in the, in the, in the inscriptions that were found, every historian that's looked at this would at least give credence that, yes, it's likely that it was this governor, that it was Quirinius. So, important thing to understand, if the census that were taken typically, and historians agree, were every 14 years. So if we look at the date given to us in Scripture over in Acts, and um, that may be... Um, uh, I don't think I wrote that exact passage down, but oh, let me let me give you this note: a fragment of stone discovered in Tivoli, which is near Rome, AD seventeen sixty four was the date. A fragment of stone discovered. It contains an inscription in honor of a Roman official who it states was twice governor of Syria and Phoenicia during the reign of Augustus. Okay, very important. Why is that important? Because again, if according to the other um, passage that we find in in uh, Acts, uh, it does cite that around AD six AD. So if you back up fourteen years, if my math's correct, somebody help me out. That's probably what A B eight B C. Okay, we find ourselves in the window of opportunity, and it's important that we notice in verse two, this census first took place. Which census? This census. Not the census over in Acts. That's the second census during his second term. And again, I, I know some of you that's like, eh, well, whoopee. For nerds like me, that's great. That's good stuff. Because again, that's firepower that's like, man, that's, mm, this book is right. It's right. And it's something to engage the world in. Once again, to say, here's some evidence. Look at the evidence. So, Anyways, uh, I know that was clear as mud for you, but um, look into that. Dig that mud out, and you'll find some good water underneath. Um, so they all went to, their regist- went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So all went to be registered. Amazing. Think about this. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius. Caesar Augustus rises to power at this given point in time. Why is this important to you and me? Well, I don't know about you, but I know it was difficult. No, it wasn't. Actually, my wife, she's a superwoman. She's, there she is. It, you know, we came here, Sarah was seven days old. Okay? And that's something, you know. 
it's hard enough in the day in which we live to travel with a, with a seven-day-old baby. Um, men, are you going to get your wife to hop on a donkey in her third trimester and travel some 80-some miles? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. You're not going to talk your wife and convince her into, hey, why don't we go down to Bethlehem and see the family? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? No. But you know who can? Make her get on a donkey and go down? God. Because, see, this is a fulfillment of Scripture. God has already promised in Malachi where the Savior is going to be born, where the Messiah is going to come into the world. He's going to come into the world in Bethlehem. Now, wait a minute. They're in Nazareth. She's in her third trimester. How are you going to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem to fulfill God's Word? Well, God's going to work. And guess how God's working? He's working in everyday affairs. He is using even wicked men and women to bring about His plan. And so you arise, the guy like Caesar Augustus, to the greatest most powerful known seed in the known world, and he declares, I want everybody to return to their homeland, to be registered. That's how you get a woman on a donkey in her third trimester and get her to where she needs to be. Guys, do you not see why all this stuff is important? Because it shows the sovereignty of God at work behind even the everyday events. I don't know, I don't pretend to know how God's going to get glory out of what just happened up in Connecticut. I don't pretend to know how God's getting glory out of a, a man who believes in, in abortion on demand who, to rise to the presidency, etc., etc. But I know this. It is working together for good for those who are called, those who are loved, who are called according to His purpose. Guys, this fits together. And God is still sovereignly at work in allowing people to get into positions and certain men and women to move and to do this and to do that. And all along, He is still in control. That's what I see beyond the clutter of everything that's going on. That's what I see when I look into this account in Luke. I see the sovereignty of God. I see God is in control. Jesus came at the appointed time. This was God's plan. Church, Jesus is coming again at the appointed time. Do you know Him? Do you know this Savior, this babe that was wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in this manger? By the way, interesting side note. Again, the mangers, you guys realize this, the mangers weren't the wooden thing. That's what that St. Francis fella came up with. No, this was all archaeological digs, findings around this time period. It was stone, stuff was stone. So he was probably born in like a cave. And in fact, this is a trough that the animals would have drank out of, this, this manger. It was probably, when you think about it, very similar to the tomb he would eventually lay in at his death prior to his resurrection. Jesus is coming again. Do you know him? 
don't miss out on the greatest gift ever offered to mankind. See past the clutter of the worldly Christmas. See past the chaos of this world, the presence, the politics. See past all the distractions and realize that God sent His Son into this world to be the Savior of the world, to save mankind from his sin. That's the Christmas message. That's why he came. I think Zacharias knew what he was talking about. I know he knew what he was talking about. Look back over in chapter 1. Think about what Zacharias said when he said the following, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies. Notice what else? To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. He continues, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, continue on, to give knowledge. Why did Jesus come? To give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins through the mercy, through the tender mercy of our God. Zacharias understood that the coming of Jesus Christ was for a specific purpose that He might ultimately be the Redeemer. We think of Christmas this year, and I know you'll recall a lot of stories of Christmases gone by, and maybe this will be one where you create new memories. But church, let's see beyond the clutter. Let's see beyond the lights, the trees. Let's for a moment turn our attention from the anxieties of the world the wars and the rumors of wars and the chaos and the political unrest. And let's remember that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son and that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray.